Good morning. It's nice to see you all and those who I can't say, see. Nice to have you. My name is Heather. I'm also one of the pastors here. Um, good to hear your words, words of prayer this morning, words that we speak to God and also good to be reminded that God is a prayer hearer and a prayer answerer. And we're in our series leading up to Easter, going to have a nice celebration on Easter. Um, we'll be here at the building, hopefully going to be outside, um, that we can all kind of gather together, and this is kind of a high holiday of the Christian church. Um, let me pray, and we'll begin. Jesus, thanks for um, just your presence, and that we just kind of feels really settling in as I heard the words of everyone praying. And so I just ask that as we attune ourselves to your word, that there would be a continued grounding that comes from like hearing each other's voices and hearing from your word and being attuned to your spirit. And so we ask that today we would be aware of you in a new way. Amen. So I have a question for you, and I might leave it awkwardly long. I'm not going to ask you to answer it. I'm just going to ask you to think about the answers as I ask you the question, and I'm going to leave enough space so that you can have like your imagination kind of get into this question and think through really tangible and practical things as I ask you this question. The question is, how do you understand power? What do you think about when you think about power? And there's no right or wrong answering. Answers is just like you pondering. So ponder away. What do you think about when you think about power? What gives someone power? What demonstrates power? Today we're going to talk about God's power. And um, as John, Johnny has been beginning our series, um, we have these pictures that we carry kind of in the gallery of our mind. In the gallery of our mind, we attach kind of ideas, thoughts, pictures, experiences to God, and then we carry that notion of God around us, and it affects how we show up and live our lives. It shapes how we live, our notion and understanding of God, these images or these pictures or these experiences that we attach to God and that becomes the caricature of who God is to us and for us and it shapes how we live. And so last week, Johnny opened up the text for us, the biblical text, and he looked at Colossians 1 
that God, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So Jesus kind of pictures God for us. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and now the Word, who is Jesus, kind of demonstrates and makes God known. That's in John chapter 1. And then Hebrews talked about how God spoke to us through the prophets in the past, but now God speaks tangibly through his son, Jesus. And so when we want to understand who God is, we look to Jesus. Jesus is the revelation of who God is to us. And so today we're in Philippians chapter 2. And it's a really pivotal passage in the biblical text. In the world of Bible people, um, lots and lots and lots of ink has been like drawn out on this particular passage, Philippians chapter 2. There's a scholar called Michael Gorman, and he describes Philippians chapter 2, specifically verses 1 to 11, as Paul's master narrative. It's a really tiny section, and there's a lot of letters written by Paul. And this scholar says that this section itself is Paul's master narrative because of what it describes about who God is. <clears throat> he would say that it's where we get our deepest understanding of God. And then he reckons that everything that Paul writes after that is about us getting in on that reality of who God is, like humans participating in the same way, kind of having that same life that is expressed here in Philippians chapter 2. And that's kind of where the passage begins. Paul is talking to this Philippian church and he's talking about that life. And he says, um, Philippians 2, chapter 2, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So here Paul is describing what it means to be Jesus-y, what it means to walk in Jesus' way. And so you look at verse 3 and it's like having the same love. Like if we've experienced Jesus and we know Jesus, then we will have this same love and that same love will show up in considering the interests of others. And so the people of Jesus, in having the same love of Jesus, action that love in self-giving. That's part of what it is to belong to Jesus. And Paul says there's a reason that we do that. And the reason that we do that isn't just because we share a set, set, we share a set of beliefs, but that we actually share the life of Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So there's something that we have in relation to Jesus. And then Paul goes on in verse 6 to describe Jesus. Jesus who, though or because he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
And that's what we're going towards, Good Friday, Easter. This is the the picture that we want to understand about Jesus as we are in this Lenten season. And in verse 6, you can see there, I think I wrote it up there, there's brackets. We call them brackets in England. Do you call them brackets? Um, Where is it? This mind, no, can we go to the next slide? Have this mind among yourselves, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse 6, that word, though. Some translators translate that word because. Um, because he was in the form of God, or though he was in the form of God. And the reason that some people translate it different is because the Greek doesn't actually necessitate a word being there. It's kind of a blank space. And so the translators kind of try and find meaning in the context, and then they add a word there. How many of you, like, speak a different language? You'll know that. Like, sometimes you can't just translate something literally. For example, like in German, which is the language that I learned in high school, so I'm not totally proficient at it, but I can get by in it. In German, you could say, Ich verstehe nur Bahnhof. So anybody speak German? Ich verstehe nur Bahnhof. And that basically means, I understand the train station. And you're all like, what? What does that actually mean? Well, basically, it means, I didn't understand anything you said. Right? Kind of a strange translation. But you get the meaning from the term, and then you translate it in such a way that it actually means something different in English because you are trying to get the force of the meaning behind the sentence as opposed to transliterating it just by the words that you hear or speak. Because the sentence wouldn't make sense if you did that. And so here, Bible scholars, and there's tons of them that work on a translation, they're trying to get the general gist and meaning behind the words that they're reading. And so, some would translate it though and others because. And there's a couple scholars, Gorman, the man I just talked to, and another man called N.T. Wright, that say a better translation is to put the word because there. And you're like, Heather, why is this important? You're like kind of landing on this little tiny section. But the reason that it's important is because of what it emphasizes. There's an emphasis that is attached to either of these words. Though emphasizes an action. Though he was in the form of God, God did this. There's an action there. Sorry about my microphone, it's kind of annoying me. There's an emphasis on what God did when you put the word though there, but if you put the word because, there is an emphasis on God's nature. who God is. And I think that's actually better. It's a better way of reading this portion of the text. Jesus displaying who God is better corresponds to the contextual evidence of the whole Bible. This kind of action of Jesus is not an anomaly. It's the very nature of who God is. It's what God does. God gives. God gives creation. God gives presence to Israel in order to have presence to the rest of the world. 
God gives. And because Jesus is God, God gave up power in order to give God's self in Jesus. And that's not an anomaly. That is the very nature and character of who God is. So because Jesus was God, he emptied himself and gave himself to humanity. It's the very nature of God revealed in the incarnation coming close to us. In the crucifixion, the self-giving action of love. It's the nature of God. I'll quote N.T. Wright. He says, A new sort of power will be let loose upon the world, and it will be the power of self-giving love. That is the heart of the revolution that was launched on Good Friday. You cannot defeat the usual sort of power by the usual sort of means. If one force overcomes another, it is still force that wins. Rather, at the heart of the victory of God over the powers of the world, there lies self-giving love. So Jesus is revealing the nature of God. And so I want to show you the image that we have for Lent, for the Lenten season. This is Jesus' demonstration of God's power. This is how God demonstrates power. The power of self-giving love. I don't know that when we look at that picture that the things, or maybe when you thought earlier about what power is, I'm not sure that that's the kind of image that came to mind. Because it actually stands in stark contrast to the world of ancient Rome that Paul is writing to. And it stands in stark contrast to our own world that we occupy. The cross was actually a way that you show your power over. It was a humiliation tool by the Roman Empire to instill fear so that you would be obeyed. And the empires were built on force and coercion, coercive power. That's how you show power. You build, you accumulate. You enact kinds of actions that show that you're above other people. And it's not isolated to the Roman Empire. Like We know that. History tells us that. That the empires that came before Rome and the empires that came after Rome used the same kind of accumulation of power and the ability to kind of use force and taxation to stay above others. That's how power is usually demonstrative. It's coercive. Often violent. And I'm reading a book at the moment by a man called Willie James Jennings And he frames the kind of power that was enacted in Rome or empires as the kind of power that is full of mastery and dominance and control. And I think that's the kind of power we're most familiar with. You know, colonization and genocide had to do with power and dominance and mastery and control. 
wars, they're constant. Because resources and land are limited, can you take you take other people's land, you take other people's resources when you believe you have rights to it and you don't really often care what it costs others. There's economic power. There's also objectification when men and women are used for sexual pleasure. There's a kind of dominance, a kind of mastery and control that's happening there. When I objectify you for my pleasure, you're a means to an end for me. We understand mastery and dominance and power and control in those ways. They're all too familiar. We can point to it in society, but we can also point to it in ourselves. I was talking to a friend on the phone this week, and we were talking about this, and that I was going to be preaching about it today, and she's like, I also, she's a mom, she has like three or four children, she's like, I also kind of like control, not going to lie. I don't want my kids to do what I tell them to. Sometimes I'm not that patient, and it turns into being about Dominance and control. I need you to do what I'm telling you to do right now. And then she's like, and then when it doesn't really go my way, I get angry. I retaliate. We know about that. When it doesn't go our way, when we're not in control, when we can't make things do or make things go the way we want it to, sometimes we're filled with rage and anger. Retaliation, revenge, and it's everywhere. But I think we need to understand that that power is not the only kind of power that's available. That's what Paul is pointing to. He wanted people who were schooled in the Roman Empire to see a different kind of power. He wants us to see, those of us, all of us, schooled in a different kind of power to understand power differently. To see God power. Jesus power. It's not the kind of power of mastery, dominance, and control. It's this kind of power. So if we look to Jesus on the cross, or as narrated from this passage in Philippians, Jesus is revealing another kind of power at work. Jesus' power. And he reveals how powerful it is. It's a power that is life-giving and generous. And all throughout the scriptures, God abounds with this kind of power. A power that gives and gives and gives and gives and creates something good for the sake of others. That's the kind of power that is generated out of God. Gives and gives and gives for the sake of something good for others. And here on the cross, Jesus is taking in hostility takes in all of the hostility that can be born into him in order that he might regenerate it into forgiveness and reconciliation and love. 
And so Jesus becoming human is a self-giving action. Jesus on the cross is a self-giving action of God. And then Jesus ascends and sends the Spirit in order that we might participate in this kind of power. Again, a self-giving action. I'm going to give you my Spirit so you can have this kind of power. God can't help God's self. He just like gives generously constantly. And it's beautiful. But I also think there's like a part of us that believes it's weak. If we're honest. Which is why so many things done in the name of Christianity show up in forms of mastery, dominance, and control. Because I think we think this is kind of weak. And so we take on the empire's form of power and we wrap Jesus' name around it and then we enact that. Crusades would be one example. There's probably examples you have in your own head where Christianity is wrapped itself in mastery, dominance, and control. And as a church, we need to lament that. But there are also examples of the way that Jesus' power shows up. I think we need to attune to those so we can get a hold of it, have an imagination for the kind of Jesus' power. And as Lydia already said, like this is the last day of Black History Month. And on March the 10th, we will celebrate Harriet Tubman Day. It was um, established in 1990. How many of you have seen the film Harriet Tubman with um, Erivo? Yes. All the rest of you will need to get after it. It's so good. Have a little look in at this film. It's so, 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 so good. She's a a woman who gives us a picture of the kind of power that is self-giving. And she had a deep, deep, deep trust in God. She escaped out of slavery. She walked nearly 100 miles to escape out of slavery to freedom. But then when she got to where she was going, she didn't feel like she was home. She knew she was free, but she didn't feel like she was home because she said... My father, my mother, my brothers, and my sisters and friends weren't there. You can resonate with that, right? All the people that felt like home weren't with her. She was just in a land that gave her her freedom. And she said they should be free too. And so she committed herself to liberating her family and her friends. So she took multiple trips, probably up maybe 12 to 19 trips back down into the south so that she could liberate her family and her friends and her loved ones. And she brought as many as she could back. She went in disguises. She was known as Moses. And she would sing. And when she knew it was safe, she would sing. And then people knew that that was their cue to join her. And then she would lead them these hundred miles. And in the end, she had to lead them all the way to Canada 
She put herself in constant threat and danger to rescue her family and her friends. And then she went on during the Civil War to care for and lead hundreds of slaves to freedom. And the people around her were astonished by her because she never lost a single person on the Underground Railroad. She had courage, she had strength, and she had love. That's power. There's power, Monsieur. And self-giving love is not about tolerating abuse, which is why Harriet Tubman is such a good example. She was motivated by love and she desired to bring freedom, which is what Jesus is doing on the cross. Motivated by love, desiring to bring freedom. And there's more than one power that can happen in society. And she embodied it. Jesus' power. It's something else altogether. Jesus' power sets captives free. It works for equity and justice. It releases enemies and it liberates without destroying. And Paul's words are echoed in Harriet's life. And there's something to lose in doing this, in embodying this kind of power. It's what Rome loses, it's what other types of power lose, and it's what we lose when we take on the values of Jesus and his kingdom. We lose dominance and we lose control. And rather than using or destroying people as a means to our own end, we see other people as important. Having the same love, verse 2, that Christ had, we're motivated to actions of love. And in Jesus, we see God's nature. It's power that is enacted differently. A power that is motivated by love. And honestly, that, again, like I said, is not easy. I'm sure that if we were chit-chattering with Harriet Tubman, she wouldn't tell us that that whole scenario was easy. It's not. It's not easy to love. It's especially not easy to love enemies. Which is why we need hope. Which is where Paul goes at the end of this kind of picture of what Christ is doing on the cross, what the Good Friday moment means. Finishes with this. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And right after Good Friday, we have Easter. We celebrate the resurrection. And this, it's, 
there's such an importance to the resurrection because it reveals that the power that God has does what it intends to do. That the Jesus power doesn't lose. It's what Easter is all about and it's what this Lenten season points us to that we'll celebrate. That we can trust that we have the power of God's Spirit to guide us into these loving kinds of actions. And that like we sung in the Feast of Zion, that ultimately that is going to be how power is understood in our world. Eventually, verse 10, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Eventually, this power does win. The Jesus power. The power that's motivated by love. And that's the hope that we hold on to. We need that. It's the hope that Harriet held on to. And we need it because we have to have a hope that is bigger than the world around us. It's hard to hope that the power of love and self-giving sacrifice might actually win. Especially when we fight over masks and politics and vaccines. Especially in light of the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. It's easy to doubt I have my own doubts, which is why we're here. We're here to habituate ourselves in the practices of Jesus, to ground and to strengthen our faith and our trust so that we might end up embodying the kind of powerful love that can transform ourselves and the people around us. So we come to be reminded in community of what we're about. To sing songs and offer prayers to a God that we know answers. And to anchor us in Jesus. To anchor us in the Jesus way. And Jesus is the one who reveals to us who God is. The one who gives and gives and gives. And that when you came in, you got a little cup, which some of you did. And that cup reminds us that at the table, it's a picture of Jesus who gives his life. And the cup is a reminder of a table that we used to have in the center of this building. And it's At the table, we find another way. It's the way of Jesus. And the power of self-giving love. And so, Missio, I ask you again, in light of this passage in Philippians, and in light of a person like Harriet Tubman, 
What is your understanding of what power is? Where is true power found? What gives someone power? What demonstrates power? God, as revealed to us in Jesus, would have us see that the most powerful thing is to demonstrate love in self-giving actions. And so as you take that cup, it's this picture of Christ's demonstration of love for you. Christ giving love to you. It's the nature of God. It's the nature of who you receive as you put that substance inside your body. Jesus demonstrates God's love. It's powerful. It's the best kind of power. Let's pray. Jesus, we, um, we're thankful that you would demonstrate a kind of power that is different than the power that we're often accustomed to. The kind of power that you embody is not about dominance and control and mastery, but so fueled by love and giving. And the text reveals that over and over and over again. So today, would you capture our imaginations with the kind of power that you demonstrate and the kind of love that you demonstrate in spirit would you have that mind be in our midst so that the actions that we demonstrate in the houses that we live in and the workplaces that we live in are similar actions of love actions that see other people that are curious about other people that respect other people Because Jesus, we acknowledge that that's the story that you tell us to ourselves and it's the story that we want to tell. And so continue to capture our imaginations with who you really are so that we can believe and we can give. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.